0: John C. The Higher Contributor, General Minister, and President of the United Church of Christ. It's upstingpost.com, August 17th, 2017, 6.51 a.m. East Coast time, update August 21st, 2017. Is the White Church the Antichrist? Is the white church the Antichrist, he asks again. If there's any contemporary meaning of the Antichrist or the principalities and powers, the white church seems to be a manifestation of it. That is a quote from James Combs' 1969 work, Black Theology and Black Power. I read it in 1986, I read it in 1986 while I was preparing myself for a life of ministry in a largely white church. That book, along with its companion piece, also by Cone for My People, convinced me that while I was not going to leave the white church, I was going to devote my unearned privilege within it, calling it to address its ongoing investment in whiteness. Without a clear commitment to telling the truth about the impact and manifestation of white power and white privilege within the church and within the culture because of what the white church fulminated with both sins of commission and sins of omission. What Cone wrote about it would remain true. If there's any contemporary meaning of the Antichrist, the white church seems to be a manifestation of it. There have been attempts on the part of the white church to distance, and to, I'm sorry, there have been attempts on the part of the white church to distance itself from its racist origins, racist legacies Racist preachers, racist ideologies, racist theologies, racist biblical texts, racist congregations, racist choir laws, racist pulpits, racist church leadership, racist donors, racist funders, racist in the pew. racist ties and offerings, racist love offerings, racist ministries, racist houses of worship, and racist practices. Current evidence suggests that those attempts are woefully inadequate. As racism continues to infest our culture, White churches throughout the land remain fully complicit in a variety of ways, with a resounding and somewhat remarkable silence that suggests ignorance of the persistent injustice of racism. The persistent injustice of racism, I repeat again, with a weariness that emerges after trying but failing to end racism, with a cynical resignation that exceeds that nothing we do is going to matter anyway, or with outright blatant racist ideologies that distort Christianity into something truly ugly and utterly abhorrent. The latter was on full display in Charlottesville, Virginia this past weekend. It is not enough for white leaders like me and the church I serve to differentiate ourselves from any brand of Christianity that looks or sounds like the hatred espoused by Nazis and white nationalists and racist biggest like the ones who surrounded the church on Friday night where both Tracy Blackman and Cornell West spoke. Not enough for us to distinguish ourselves from those carrying torches and chanting blood and soil and rendering the local police force obliged to hold the worshipers inside the church until they could secure their safety and remove them without threat of terror. No easy task, this no easy task this i say again giving the mob mentality that had erupted and given the legacy of church burnings and murders that their ilk are known for hell no it is not enough for us to say that is not what we stand for because our current iteration of the church and of the faith it espouses is replete with its own form of white supremacy that manifests itself in a myriad of offenses that include silence in face of overt acts of white terror, failure to address it, failure to address the epidemic of white cops killing black victims of their profiling, insufficient, inadequate, and tepid responses to the continuing manifestations of American racism, which include mass incarceration, the so-called drug war, educational imbalances, gerrymandering, housing discrimination the distribution of wealth and jobs along clearly racial lines, a lack of critical insight into the impact and manifestation of a white privilege evident at every level of the white church and the almost universal acceptance of Jesus as a blue-eyed, blonde, white man. Every eruption of public manifestation of race hate is another invitation to the white church to put bodies on the front lines to combat a system that they clearly still benefit from being a part of. The Rodney Kingbird, the O.J. Simpson trial, the shooting of Trayvon Martin by a vigilante, the murders by police of Michael Brown, Kendra James, and Freddie Gray all demonstrated a clear division between the responses of Black community leaders and white church leaders. Every one of these moments was an opportunity for white rage to stand in solidarity with Black pain, and it didn't. And it didn't our words never enough to end racism and even when on the side of justice only served to indict us as co-conspirators in the ongoing perpetuation of systems of injustice and oppression that we remain inextricably connected to whenever races like the ones who assembled in charlottesville gather they use what they believe about their distorted views of christianity as both a weapon and a shield they use the cover of groups like christian identity to justify their perverse and destructive hate speech imagining that what they do and say is in keeping with if not a fully obedient response to the teachings of Christianity. More moderate and progressive Christians deplore that but don't really mobilize anything close to a collective organized and successful effort to disown it. Brian McLaurin recently wrote in a reflection on his trip to Charlottesville for the Nazi rally and he writes, We Christians in particular need to face the the degree to which white Christianity has failed, grievously, tragically, unarguably failed to teach its white adherents to love their non-white neighbors as themselves. As an elected leader of historically white denomination that has been struggling through the decades to live more fully into its declaration to become a multiracial multicultural church i am fully and faithfully committed to eradicating our lingering addiction to white privilege and to leveraging our full capacity as an agent for racial equity but that is an ongoing struggle whites in america even christian leaders in a fairly progressive denomination have proven either unable or unwilling to dismantle systems that oppress people of color it is one thing to enjoin a battle to end racism It is one thing to march in support of Black Lives Matter. It is one thing to read about or study the impact and manifestation of privilege. It is one thing to rail against a racist precedent and government that have recreated safe space for Nazis and white nationalists to flourish again, to crawl out of whatever caves they have been hiding in like vermin for decades now. It is another thing entirely to actively participate in the dismantling of institutions like our schools, our churches, and our government, which as they were being built, were inculcated with racist roots so deep that there's nothing we could do to quote, unquote, fix them by simply washing away what remains of their racist past. Paul Griffin, in 1999 wrote this in the introduction to his book, Seeds of Racism in the Soul of America. The old seeds of racism have been shown to be sprouting bad fruits all across present day America. Even so, many will continue to heap the bulk of the blame for the persistence of racist ideas on rednecks, white supremacists, Donald Trump, and political conservatives. While none of these are immune from blame, racism also continues because the taproot of its early seeds have not yet been cut by white liberals. When James Cone wrote in 1969, if there's any contemporary meaning of the Antichrist or the principalities and powers, the white church seems to be a manifestation of it. He was suggesting that the extent to which the white church fails to activate itself as an agent of racial equity, the extent to which it harbors racism and tolerates bigots, the extent to which its addiction to whiteness buys its complicit silence remain the extent to which it is a manifestation of the principalities and powers in our contemporary cultural milieu. To be sure, there were leaders from predominantly white churches and religious bodies demonstrating on the streets of Charlottesville. We are proud of all of them. Among them, Seth Willsbury and Brittany King Conley. At some point though, they have to stop being our outliers until they are our norm and until the the mass, mass of resistance to white power Think the Proud Boys, think q and think the Capitol insurrections. White privilege and white supremacy forms a collective desire among white leaders to deconstruct the very institutions that built white supremacy in the first place. We have to be open to the hard truth James Cone was calling us to face. OpenOpenSeminary.org. what I saw in Charlottesville, photo taken by Reverend Stephen D. Martin, by Brian McLaren. As I wrote last week, I accepted an invitation from the Charlottesville clergy to come to the city the weekend of the Unite the Right rally to join them in witness against white supremacy, neo nazism racism, and associated evils, which are counter to both the Christian gospel and American democracy. Free speech is a protected right, and we were not protesting against the rally's right to speak. Rather, we were using our right to free speech to bear witness for a better message of consolation, conciliation, and peace. We were supporting the clergy of Charlottesville to stand against the incursion of white supremacists like Richard Spencer. Here are some initial reflections based on my experience on the white supremacists and their message on the clergy and faith community on the other anti-racism protesters, on the police, and on next steps. On the white supremacist neo-Nazis and their allies. First, I was impressed by their organization. They showed up in organized caravans of rented white vans, pickup trucks, and other vehicles, and then quickly lined up with flags and started marching. I don't know what act they were using, but it worked. After the state of emergency was declared, the organization seemed less effective, with more confusion and milling around. Second, they were young. The majority seemed to me were in their 20s and 30s, mostly men with a few women. I was told by one protester that many of the older leaders were retired military. Many came dressed in white shirts and khaki pants, reminding me of office workers or Walmart employees. Many wore helmets and carried handmade shields. They looked like they came expecting to fight, threaten, and intimidate. Some came in Para-military guard, heavily armed. They carried an assortment of flags, mostly Confederate, many representing their respective organizations with a surprising number of Nazi flags. I'm 61, and before this weekend, I've never seen a single Nazi flag carried proudly in the United States. This weekend, I saw many. As has been widely reported, their chants included, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us, white lives matter, and the like. Their use of torches Friday night and slogans like blood and soil were clearly intended to evoke the KKK and Nazism, there was a good bit of hail Trump chanting with Nazi gestures. Before and after the event, I have been checking a number of white supremacist websites and Facebook pages related to unite the right leaders and identify participants, a deeply disturbing experience, and put in parentheses, that the unabashed racism, deceiving hatred, the chest-thumping hubris, the anti-semitism, the massaging, the shameless desire to harm their opponents, the gushing love for Trump, Putin, and Stalin. Of all people, they speak for themselves. I was struck by how often the term balls come up in their posts. These seem like insecure young men who are, spe- who are especially eager to prove their manhood, recalling election season, bragging about quote-unquote hand size. Speaking of size, I haven't been able to to find any estimate on crowd size, I would guess around a thousand white supremacists. And I would guess that the total number of anti racism, anti fascism protesters was equal or greater. On the clergy and faith community response, I've participated in many protests and demonstrations over the years, but have not seen the faith community come together in such a powerful and beautiful way as they did in Charlottesville. Brittany Kane Conley and Seth Wilspurway deserve a lot of credit, as do the Congregate Seabill team they coordinated. I hesitate to name groups represented as I will forget someone, so please forgive me in advance. But I met UCC Episcopal Methodist Unitarian Lutheran Baptist Alliance, Anglican Presbyterian Jewish faith leaders, and the Quakers were out in large numbers wearing bright yellow t-shirts. I met Catholic lay people, but I didn't meet or see any Catholic priests. Two Episcopal bishops were present, and that encouraged priests of their diocese to be involved. Along with those of us who participated in an organized way, it was clear that many ad hoc groups of Christians and others came to protest. Some with signs, some giving out water and snacks to anti-racist protesters. Black, white, Latino, and Asian clergy worked and stood side by side. Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, and others marched, prayed and sang as allies. The courage of the clergy present inspired me. In public gatherings and in private conversations before Saturday, participating clergy were warned that there was a high possibility of suffering bodily harm. A group of clergy, pictured below, walked arm in arm into the very center of the storm, so to speak, delaying entry to the park as they stood, sang, and kneeled. Lisa Sharon Harper shares her reflections here. This symbolic act took a great deal of courage, and many who did so were spat on, subjected to slurs and insults, and exposed to tear gas. I hold them in the highest regard. Other clergy and faith leaders among this group marched to a park, participated in a rally, and then dispersed to several locations, including a Methodist church a block from, from Emancipation Park, where we helped medics, sang, and held signs as a message to white supremacists and Nazi marchers provided water and other support to anti-racism protesters. When the rally was disbanded by the police, many of us responded to reports of skirmishes and sought to de-escalate tensions. When the white supremacist terrorist driver ran into anti-racism protesters, many of us were nearby. We ran together to the scene where we ministered to the injured and supported their loved ones. Many of us helped at the parks that were designated as safe spaces and quotations for anti-racism protesters. And we provided pastoral care, asking people if they were okay, listening to their stories, assisting them with finding medics, and offering them encouragement. At least a dozen times, protesters said to me, thanks so much to you clergy for being here. Our presence meant something to them. I come from a tradition that doesn't doesn't normally use vestments. But I was glad that clergy guard made faith leaders visible in this circumstance. On the other anti-racism protesters, along with Concrete Seville, there were other groups protesting the message of white supremacy and Nazism. I was deeply impressed with the Black Lives Matter participants. They went into the middle of the fray and stood strong and resilient against vicious attacks, insults, spitting pepper spray, tear gas, and hurled objects. It's deeply disgusting to see BLM, Black Lives Matter, be vilified on Fox News and other conservative outlets after watching them comport themselves with courage in the face of vile hatred this weekend. There were several anti-fascism groups whose exact affiliations were not easy to ascertain. I was moved by, young, I was moved by one young woman from one of these groups at the scene of the killing. She stood on a milk crate and shouted, this is a paraphrase, people, this is hard. This is heartbreaking to see our neighbors lying in the street severely injured but we must realize what's at stake when nazis and white supremacists white supremacists want to take control of our country we must not be intimidated but be more committed than ever to stand against them there was no call to violence or revenge only a call to resist there was no call to violence or revenge only a call to resilient resistance i was also deeply impressed by EPA students i met The group of young men and women that stood up to the torch-carrying marchers on Friday night had amazing courage. Their fellow students, their parents, and all of us should be proud of these young leaders. Not all of the group shared a commitment to nonviolent resistance in the tradition of Dr. King. I saw a few groups of protesters who, like the Nazis and white supremacists, came with handmade shields and helmets. I heard reports that some of these groups used pepper spray on the white supremacists who were also using pepper spray sticks and fists on them. On the police. Considering the number of guns present, it is amazing that no shots were fired and the various police forces gathered deserve a great deal of credit for this. The local and state police had a huge challenge on their hands and their task was very difficult. In my fields of observation, they did not seem present to intervene quickly when skirmishes broke out. They seemed to stay back in the background. Perhaps this was intentional strategic for reasons I don't understand, Be that as it may, I couldn't help but think about the contrast between the hands-off way heavily armed white supremacists were treated by police in Charlotte and how unarmed African-Americans' other demonstrations have been beaten and arrested around the country over the years, or how unarmed Native Americans were treated at Black Rock a few months ago. That contrast is haunting itself an expression of white privilege. On next steps, the young age of many of the white supremacists and Nazis suggests two things to me. First, that young white people are being radicalized in America today, radicalized at to the point of using the ISIS tactic of killing people in the car. And second, that this problem isn't going away fast, especially if radicalizing influences continue or increase their activities among younger generations. What does this mean? First, it means that white mothers, fathers, grandparents, wives, husbands, sisters, brothers, children, and pastors need to speak up when their loved ones are being radicalized. Every white American family needs to realize that radicalization isn't simply something that happens in the Middle East. It is happening today in Ohio and Kentucky and Florida and Virginia. Make no mistake, these are radical groups seeking to unite and fight together. In addition, clergy around the country must prepare now for what? In addition, clergy around the country must prepare now for when an event like this comes to the area, which may be sooner than they think. I understand that Richmond has already been targeted for another such rally in a few months, just as male mammals seek to mark territory. These human groups seem determined to maintain their markers of white supremacy, namely statues and flags associated with the era and culture of slavery. Their oddly ambiguous slogan, you will not replace us, seems to mean, you will not replace our white supremacy. All of us especially people of faith need to proclaim that white supremacy and white privilege and all other forms of racism and injustice must indeed be replaced with something better, a beloved community where all are welcome, all are safe, and all are free. White supremacists and Nazi dreams of apartheid must be replaced with a better dream. People of all tribes, races, creeds, and nations learn to live in peace, mutual respect, and and neighborliness. Such a better world is possible only if we set our hearts on realizing the possibility. We Christians, in particular, need to face the degree to which white Christianity has failed, grievously, tragically, and arguably failed to teach its white adherents to love their white, to love their non-white neighbors as themselves. Congregations of all denominations need to make this an urgent priority to acknowledge the degree to which white American Christianity has been a chaplaincy to white supremacy for centuries, and in that way has betrayed the gospel. Our Christian leaders need to face the deep roots of white Christian supremacy that go back to 1452 and the Doctrine of Discovery, and before that to the tragic deals made by 4th century bishops with Emperor Constantine, and before that to the rise of Christian anti-Semitism near decades after Jesus. This tense season of our history needs to be quite literally a come-to-Jesus moment for Christianity in America. Along with this theological and spiritual work, we have very urgent practical work we have very urgent practical work to do including one preempting the continuing development of white supremacist nazi and fascist groups through preventative measures through preventative measures two building relationships among groups that oppose racism and nazism both religious and secular three improving planning and coordinating among these groups and four addressing the ways that white supremacists and nazis are seeking to use us as foils to win over conservative people through fear and division which is the strategy behind Unite the Right. What is needed in all these areas and more will be the subject of many conversations in the coming hours, days, and weeks. Brian Dean McLaurin is author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. He's the author of The Great Spiritual Migration and an Arvin Senior Fellow. Well this is what I'm thinking. I tell you what I'm thinking after I just found the article. This last one y'all. Will America pick up its cross? Lisa Sharon Harper, August 14, 2017. On Saturday, August 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia, I was faced with a choice. Would I pick up my cross? Jesus warns his disciples, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Mark chapter eight, verses 34 to 35. Just before walking onto the street, organizers of the Charlottesville clergy call walked us through the changing dynamics of the situation. There would be four times more white nationalists in Charlottesville than previously projected. One quarter of the clergy they thought would be there actually showed up. If we stepped onto the street, we're risking arrest, injury, or death from the police or the white nationalists. We knew what we were walking into. We knew that we might not come back. I was hesitant and torn, and almost didn't do it. I imagined a devastating loss my mother would feel upon hearing of my death in Charlottesville. I felt guilty for leaving her alone just before her second knee surgery. How will she make it through? I imagine not being present to witness my nieces and nephews and family. It was as if all that is most treasured in my life flashed before my eyes as the rest of the clergy walked out onto the street. I sat in silence and begged God for for a definitive word. God spoke, be present. That was the call, be present, even if it means being present on your way to the cross. I hugged some friends who were staying back to support in other ways asked them to pray for us. I walked through the door and joined the rest of the clergy on the street. The rest you can see video footage here and the pictures here they put here in red letters because they're red letter Christians. The night before at the mass prayer meeting we were asked to reflect on why we were doing this. We were handed paper and pens and asked to write down our thoughts and to share it with someone in case something happened to us on the street that day. The answer to that question could be answered definitively. Here is what I wrote. I am here to walk in the tradition of my ancestors and bear the truth of God that we too are made in the image of God. I am here to bear witness that I was created to take up space in the world, to be, to live, to thrive, to lead, to love, and to be connected with all. What strikes me now is that to bear witness to my right to live, I had to be willing to die. This has been the cross that people of African descent Native American people have born for more than 500 years on U.S. soil. Ever since the demon called colonization led Europeans to claim the land, enslave, then remove its original inhabitants and enslave and exploit people of African descent to work that land and build their country in the name of colonizing them. Read Black History of the White House, page 195 by Clarence L- Lusain Black people and Indigenous Americans have had to risk death to bear witness to our right to live. i at and they brought all the diseases over. These colonization-minded Europeans that also contributed to widespread germ murder of Native Americans. Using my historical analysis, added to what she said. It has been the cross that Latino and Asian American people have borne for the past 200 plus years since colonization stole land from Mexicans and declared it was now America. And Chinese men were exploited to build the railroads and fill empty slave cappers in the shadow of emancipation. Yes, Chinese men were the next wave exploited to build the US economy after the civil war. Now Muslim and Sikh and LGBTQI plus people risk death to proclaim their right to live to take up space to flourish that the demon colonization claims human flourishing for its own exclusive pleasure the colonizing spirit declares the self to be fully human to have the right to steward the world and all else either an asset a burden or an obstacle to be eliminated on the way to the self's exclusive in quotations human flourishing human quotations too colonization is the soil from which our nation sprung colonization's truth and rightness are the underlying assumptions upon which our entire way of life rests colonization created the political construct of race itself for one purpose to secure the exclusive right of dominion for folks deemed white by the state Colonization's logic morphed from British taxes to Black poll taxes and plantations converted to prison farms, to Nixon's war on drugs that criminalized heroin, primarily a rich white woman's addiction, and then focused police in Black neighborhoods to disrupt the Black vote and secure a new generation of free Black labor to build military weapons and sue Victoria's secret undies for 40 five cents per day. The logic of colonization led to the genocide, removal, and missionization of Native American peoples. It led the U.S. government to break every single treaty it ever made to the Native people of our land. Snatching land, it promised Native people that would they would hold in perpetuity. Standing rock was such a land until... The white supremacist president, Donald Trump, authorized a pipeline to run straight through ancestral burial grounds rather than disrupt white neighborhoods. The federal judge declared Trump's authorization illegal in June, but oil flow continues. The same colonizing logic that led Republican strategist Lee Atwater to scheme the Southern strategy has led Republicans to let the Voting Rights Act of 1965 brought since the Supreme Court defanged it in 2013 and Trump advisor Stephen Miller to defend a new GOP bill that would drastically reduce legal immigration. In the same colonizing spirit, to, in the same colonizing spirit, permeates the white church. It's the spirit that let white parishioners of St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church to segregate new black parishioners into the balcony. And catalyze. Absalom, J- Absalom Jones and Richard Allen to lead a walk out of St. George's to dive with St. Thomas African Episcopal Church and the African Methodist Episcopal Church, respectively. Today, the colonizing spirit leads Christian conferences to flash all or nearly all white speaker lineups without a blush, promote white worship music as the gold Christian standard around the world, and built mega churches in the mode of mega malls and amusement parks that serve hundreds of thousands of music and scripture disconnected from parishioners' local contexts and needs. This is the spirit that led the majority of the entire white church to vote for a I'm just gonna say it: devil or demon if you will who promised to take our country back. We can't get around it. The spirit of colonization drives white America always has, and the church is no different. Trump is an antichrist. The thought is in my head, and I felt the need to speak it. This truth nearly drove me to despair today as I poured through the attacks and messages from well-meaning white evangelical leaders. They are not evangelical, because that's an insult to evangelicals like Harriet Tubman Frederick Douglas to the truth I'm done <laughs> they called Facebook followers to listen to leaders of color like me some wrote blog posts distancing themselves from Trump and outlining steps Christians can take to fight racism Others simply shout encouragement on Twitter and it was appreciated. But tears fell from my eyes three times today when I asked myself one question. Will their followers vote differently next time? Will my friends as followers vote in a way that ends mass incarceration and modern day prison slavery next time? Will they vote in a way that welcomes immigrants to our nation and gives undocumented people a way to stay and thrive? Will they vote in a way that preserves the economic safety net for poor people and moves health care further, providing health care, access to long, healthy life for all, will they vote in a way that makes Congress protect every American's right to vote? I knew the answer. I know the answer. They won't. Why? Because when talking about the gospel life, why white evangelical friends tend to leave that stuff out in the evangelical worldview. If it's gospel, then it's essential. If it's not gospel, then it's extracurricular. So exploitation of people and voter disenfranchisement of people and breaking up families through mass deportation is extracurricular and facing down the colonizing spirit in the white church as well extracurricular and evangelical since 1983. I went through a deep transformation of my understanding of the gospel when I embarked on a privilege that led me to confront my own colonized mind I have been viewing the gospel to the lens of people that benefited from colonization. But that simplified, defanged, disconnected gospel made no sense when I considered this question. With my ancestors who walked the trail of tears according to family oral history, enslaved in South Carolina and Virginia according to slave schedules, wills, and census documents, would they consider a gospel with nothing to say to their actual colonized lives, good news, and quotations? When I, say my co- when I saw my colonized gospel through their eyes, the answer was clear, no. Then I realized something even more profound. Every word of every book in the scripture was written by a person who was colonized under threat of colonization by empire. The good news of the Bible must be considered good news to the colonized. One thing gives me hope, the cross, which was originally an instrument of persecution for those who dared to denounce colonizing empire. The cross stands at the center of our faith. The cross calls us to renounce and denounce any spirit that would lead, to marginalized, that would lead us to marginalize, minimize, ignore, exploit, or erase the image of God among us. Renounce those spirits indeed. It calls us to choose loss because we serve ourselves at others' expense. The cross calls us to deep interrogation of our hearts, our theology, our daily practices, and all assumptions that lead to the crushing of the image of God on earth. Pick up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. The only hope for our nation is that Christians will listen to Jesus. This article is reposted with permission from Arben Seminary's Voices blog. Wow. And I'm going to read her bio. Lisa Sharon Harper is the founder and president of Freedom Road LLC and the author of several books, including the critically claimed a very good gospel, how everything wrong can be made right. Asked why she does what she does, Lisa's answer is clear. So that the church might be worthy of the moniker Bride of Christ. Through preaching, writing, training, network development, public witness, Lisa on being senior fellow, engages the church in the work of justice and peacemaking. She's named number five of the top 13 women to watch in 2012. By the Center for American Progress and Work, 2013 Faith and Justice Leadership Award by the National Black Women's Roundtable. She formerly served as the Chief Church Engagement Officer at St. Jenner's. Wow. All I can say is, everything I just read to you was confirmed to me. Um, Through the memories of being in white churches in Leesburg, Florida, when I was an undergrad student at Beacon College. I saw white Jesus in bed with Tucker Carlson, I saw white Republicanism dominating the pulpit preaching, I saw willful, blatant, And fraudulent apologies of not understanding Black life and what it means to be a Black human in this world and I saw Confederate Christianity. I'm very thankful for all of these articles.